Have you ever wanted to be the first to know if aliens really exist? Well, with Nebula, you can be! Nebula is the streaming service that's home to its Probably Not Aliens, as well as our YouTube channels. And the best part? All of our content goes up early on Nebula. So when we break first contact with E.T., you'll be the first to find out. That's right, you'll be able to listen to the next episode of this show before anyone else. Plus, we post bonus content that you won't find any other place. And the best part? By signing up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash probablynotaliens, you're directly supporting the show and both of us. So don't wait any longer. Join Nebula today and be the first to know if this time it really is aliens. So uh, I did not know where this fits in, but I know that you have a strict do not tweet about Star Wars policy. That is true. I'm uh, that's under my my guidelines for this year. I feel like people have talked too much about Star Wars on Twitter and it has only brought about sadness. Well, I don't know if this extends to podcasts, but okay. uh, one thing that's really kind of interesting and a good way to viscerally understand what's going on. Uh, with the Nazca lines, the topic of this episode is uh, if you remember the only good Star Wars movie, The Last Jedi. Right. I agree. There was a scene in which they were on a planet where there was like red dirt under white salt sand stuff. Yes. I believe that was Crate or something like that. It was the planet. Sure. It, yeah, it was proper noun. It was the planet proper noun. Yep, that's the one. Yeah, it was one of those things that, um, you know, you go to Wikipedia, you find out. But um, so there was a scene where there was this, yeah, this like white sand with red stuff underneath. And the Nazca lines are basically that. So if you want to like imagine how do you ah. make a Nazca line, you just do uh, Star Wars Episode 8. You just rescue. What's what's this guy's name? Finn? You, you drink Rose and you rescue Finn from driving into a laser beam. And that's how, and that's how the Nazca lines were formed. Now that's interesting. <laughs> now, so that that's full episode over. We've discovered it. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned Star Wars because that did canonically happen a long, long time ago. That's true. And so it would fit that they are ancient aliens. Everyone in Star Wars is an ancient alien to us. We got it. We nailed got it. In it. One. Got it in one. That's the best part about us as podcasters. It's like many people go hundreds of podcasts before they finish it. And we we solved it in, we solved like, it what, in three thing. episodes. Well, we've definitely alienated a lot of potential listeners that we might have had by just immediately early episodes saying there's only one good Star Wars movie and it's The Last Jedi. And so <laughs> everyone's going to be like, well, all right, um, I'm maybe not going to listen to these guys so much. Or maybe they'll definitely listen to us because we're right. It was the knives out of podcasts um, or the knives out of Star Wars. It sure was. Welcome to It's Probably Not Aliens. Welcome to It's Probably Not Aliens. A podcast where we talk about things that people think are aliens, but probably aren't. Probably. We don't know. I don't know. I'm not the expert here. I am just like you, listener. I am someone who is curious and has questions. And I've watched a couple episodes of Ancient Aliens at this point. Yeah, we should dig into that because you mentioned... You messaged me today and you were yes. like, I finally watched a few episodes of the show and oh boy. Yeah. So first and foremost, hi, I'm Scott Nicewander. 
Uh, I am one of the co-hosts of this podcast. And I'm Tristan Johnson, the other co-host of this podcast. We're really good at this. We're so good at intros. Um, Yeah, so this was my first time watching an episode of Ancient Aliens. And I got mixed up a little bit because I was watching it on a streaming service. I'm not going to say any number of any one of them just because none of them are sponsoring us. But I was watching it on a streaming service. And it started on episode one, like labeled episode one. I did not realize there was an episode zero. Yeah. So So, I don't exactly know the story of this, but it seems like Ancient Aliens started as sort of a history channel special, mm -hmm. you know, back when they actually used to do documentaries. But it was so popular, they were like, well, let's take this 90-minute special we did and turn it into a now, what, 16-season TV show at this point? Yeah, so I got through all, I got through about maybe like three quarters of episode one, and you were telling me in advance that you wanted to talk about Nazca lines, and I was, you know, like 75% of the way through this episode one. I'm like, when are these lines going to come up? When are these going (laughs) to happen? I want to learn about these, but I haven't, they've not said anything, and it was only after I fully finished the episode that I scrolled upwards on uh, the little streaming app and I realized, oh, I should have watched this special first before I jumped into episode one. So I've seen the special, the episode zero. I've seen episode one and I've seen like half of episode two just because I was so interested. This show has me hooked from the the get-go. But I'm so excited to learn. I have so many questions that we we will talk about in future episodes. (laughs) I I think this is a good sign. I'm interested. This is a good show. It it could have been worse. I could have hated the show entirely, but I'm very fascinated by it. I got through watching the pilot, the, the, the special, and I walked away with like, well, this is like five episodes worth of content right here. (laughs) So Um, much. One of the things about debunking and, you know, rigorous skeptical analysis of, claims is you learn very quickly that it's really easy to say something that is untrue and just sort of state it out there than it is to go into the hour and a bit long explanation via podcast about why the thing that you're (laughs) insinuating might not be true. One thing that took me back is I remember watching this when I was like maybe a teenager or something and it premiered in 2009. So early 2009. So I was 20 and I think I remember finding it interesting, but coming back to it, I was actually taken aback by how thoroughly unconvincing it is. It's wild to me how how not very convincing the arguments are. It's so funny to me. They will almost undermine themselves as they're trying to convince you that it's aliens. They'll be like, now, could these people have done this just to appease some sort of you know, God, or, or was it a part of their, you know, culture? Do they have the tools to make this? Sure. But what if it was aliens though? Yeah. And it's like, okay, you have to give me something where there's no other explanation, but they're like giving these like very believable real world explanations of like, yeah, they had the technology to do it this way. Oh, but that would have taken so long. They must have had alien technology to help them. It could have done this, but it would have been really hard. It would have been really hard to do that without aliens. Yeah. So I 
so when I was watching it, I was thinking through, because I, I, I've i studied a little bit about this, because I actually did a video on Step Back about ancient aliens a few years ago. And I remembered that the people that they interviewed, they have two regular ufologists, including one whose uh, bona fide is that he has a radio show about UFOs. Yeah. And then they interview uh, Eric von Daniken, who I think might be a video in and of himself. He is a unique individual. Yes. And then a lot of the arguments that came out of the first episode were focused on topics that featured in his 1968 book, Chariot of the Gods. And I was looking into this and really like digging through and seeing like things. Uh, A lot of those reasons, a lot of the reasons why they had to walk back a lot of those arguments is because they've been thoroughly undone. Like (laughs) chariot of the gods has had various accusations of things like plagiarism or taking things from fiction, like uh, from HP Lovecraft and stuff like that. Really? Yeah. But also a lot of the times he went to a lot of civilizations that were notably the civilizations that weren't primarily white people and then saying these primitives could not possibly have done a complex thing. That's what it sounds like. That That's the vibe that I definitely got across from watching the, the very few episodes that I did was, you know, like there, there's a lot of talk about like masonry and stonework. Like, could people back then have done something like this? Well, sure, but they would have been had to have been a master of their craft for decades and it would have taken so long. And it's like, OK, you're not telling me no. You're not telling me that these people could not have done this. You're just saying that you don't believe they could have because it's a skill level beyond what you thought that they could be capable of. Yes, they had to hedge their language quite a bit in the special because they couldn't just be, well, I don't believe this. These people were too primitive to know how to carve lines in the sand. So therefore, it's uh, it must be aliens. Yeah. But um, the first one, and this is probably one of like the big ancient alien favorites, like ancient astronaut theorists love the Nazca lines. They're very bold. They're very convincing. They're very cool looking. And if you were to say, hey, look, it's an image that can only be seen from the sky. What could that possibly mean? It must be somebody needed to look at it down from up above. But how would you do that? It's been a mystery for quite some time. Mm -hmm. And aliens is like, you know, a, a very easy early thing to go to. But uh, first, let's talk a little bit about what this is. Um, so yeah. what we see here, what we see, if if this was a podcast with slides, but we're not, well, there's your problem, yeah. so we can't do that. Paint me a word picture. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so in the Peruvian desert, there are a bunch of these, what are called geoglyphs in the sand or in the dirt, uh, huge lines. Some of them seem to splay out from a singular point. Some of them seem to make animal shapes. Mm -hmm. Some would, if you were looking at it and didn't realize that there was a time before airplanes, would think that it was a runway, an ancient runway, Mm -hmm. as they imply on the the show. And they're really a testament to the amazing ingenuity of indigenous Americans. And if there's like one thing you're going to see over and over again in a lot of ancient astronaut theorists is that there's a lot of diminution of just how complex and sophisticated and the artisanal mastery of all sorts of different forms of construction Mm -hmm. and infrastructure that indigenous people had before the Columbian exchange. So this is the first place they go in the first episode 
And the first thing they try to kind of draw this conclusion is that the lines are most definitely a runway for ancient airplanes. And they kind of point to something called cargo cults. What is that? Very, another very interesting sort of chapter of our history that uh, is really cool. So it is sort of a general term now to believe to describe like a belief system where the people who perform it uh, believe that they're going to cause a more technologically advanced society to deliver them goods. Um, The story of this, the reason why they're called cargo cults is that in the Pacific Ocean during World War II, there were several small islands that had pre-industrial cultures on them that did not really have like a lot of communication with outsiders and didn't really have, you know, technology as we see it today. Mm -hmm. But in the war between the United States and the empire of Japan, a lot of these islands would have to then become makeshift staging grounds as they island hopped across the Pacific to get to Japan, which meant that people with 1940s technology started showing up and they start showing up with their airplanes and their cargo, mm. you know, big crates full of, uh, you know, supplies and things like that. And fairly often the people who were there would give away or trade their cargo with the local, the locals, you know, in exchange for letting them stay on their island or just as gifts or whatnot. Yeah, of course. So this could be things like food. It could be things like uh, medicine. And then the war abruptly ended. The soldiers left and these sort of pseudo religions, these sort of like uh, quasi religions attempted to bring back the gifts given to them by the Americans. I see. So they didn't quite understand that the war was over. Like they didn't get that, that memo. It's like, Hey, the war's over. So we're not going to be dropping in here anymore. And so they're just like, well, how do we bring them back? Yeah. And because they had a sort of pre-industrial level of technological development and, you know, pre-science, those kinds of things, they were trying to think about like what kinds of things they would do. And so cargo cult thinking tends to be when you are mimicking a series of things to try and make something happen, but without actually knowing why those things cause that thing to happen. So what would happen is that they would do things like build makeshift runways on the island. They would make like Mm. uh, airplanes out of thatch, things like that in order to sort of coax the the cargo to come back. That's interesting. I think the episode did talk about this a little bit and I was very curious about it. I was interested to know if that was indeed true because it it sounded very interesting, but I had no idea if it was a real thing that happened. It is a thing that happened. Uh, The degree to which it happened and how profound it is, is, you know, debatable, but... Uh, you would need to, we need to talk to, um, uh, someone who has a lot more expertise on it than I sure. do to kind of really get into it. But there are things like, uh, after the soldiers left, they would pick up cultural like folkways, like wearing military uniforms or sometimes mimicking the dress or, um, you know, things like parades or drills with wooden rifles or sal- salvaged rifles and stuff mm. like that to try and almost turn the things they saw that came with supplies into rituals. So the ancient aliens people think, well, uh, maybe the Nazca people who lived in this region were doing that. They were building runways because they got airplane cargo before. From aliens. From aliens. That makes sense. 
And that they were doing this to try and coax them to come back because they came with all of that high technology that we have evidence of. It's ba- it's like a it's like um like a superstition almost. It's like when you're I I don't I'm not a big sports fan, but I do. Uh, it's my understanding that sports fans will have a lot of like superstitions where there's there's correlation, but there's that causation sort of a thing where it's like, oh, I was wearing the shirt when my team won, so that means this shirt is a lucky shirt. Mm-hmm. It's very much like that where it's like, oh, well, if there were people wearing these types of clothes and that's when we got cargo, so if we wore those clothes, will the cargo come back? If we build airplanes and runways, will they come back? We'll see. Yeah. And there's been some very interesting uh, anthropological studies into cargo cults and things like that. But that's sort of like the setup for the Nazca lines. Now, have you ever been to Peru? I've not been to Peru. No. Me neither. I, I don't but... think I've ever left the the United States. I think I went to Canada once because I lived in Michigan for a bit. But I've also been told that if you live in Michigan and you visit Canada, that doesn't even count because it's right there. So technically, I've not even left the States. Well, Peru has a desert, and this is possibly one of the driest places in the world. There are parts of this desert where we can't really say how much rainfall they get Mm -hmm. because it has yet to rain since we started measuring things like rainfall. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's uh, quite a desert there then, huh? Mm Mm-hmm. Now, the region where the Nazca lines are, not only is it bone dry, yeah, but also the sort of setup of the topography means that there's actually not that much wind. Oh, okay. So the dirt is not very churned up. And if you're to say, do something like what you would do in a desert, you know, if you carved like a line in the sand or something like that, it would actually stay there for a long period of time. Mm, interesting. So what this means is that the soil in the Nazca Desert has this layer of uh, gravel on the top that's red. It's made up of of rust, right? Mm -hmm. And if you carve that away, just underneath is this um, yellow soil. And so yellow, the yellow really shows up on the red. And so if you carve this out, you can actually make shapes pretty easily. This is like the scene from The Last Jedi. (laughs) It's so good. Yeah. So... These geoglyphs have been made by taking uh, depressions on the floor of the desert, which mean, and these things have been able to be preserved for a long, long time. It's predicted that the Nazca lines are somewhere between one and a half and two and a half thousand years old. Oh boy. Yeah. And also to help with its preservation, the soil underneath the, uh, the rust on top is made with uh, or has a lot of lime in the soil, which means that when there, the, the water it does get, which is morning mist, mixes into it, it kind of hardens to make a protective layer that shields it from the wind. So this is why it doesn't erode very much. And this is only about 400 kilometers from uh, Peru's capital of Lima. So it, it, so it sounds like there's just like this perfect little perfect little spot for this stuff to be preserved for long periods of time. Mm-hmm. It's not even a small spot. It's just very desolate and yeah. very like kind of out of the way. The ancient Nazca people made it and we don't actually, it's so old that we're not even 100% sure who the people were who made it. A lot of our uh, studies of the spaces or of the lines have actually raised a lot of questions about like, oh, who are the people who even made this? And like, we've only kind of been able to infer things from studying other cultures uh, that live in kind of neighboring areas. Mm. 
but it was rediscovered partially in 1586 by a Spanish conquistador, and then in the 20th century when airplanes started showing up in Peru. And they were like, what are all these animal drawings from the sky? What's that about? Yeah, that's the thing. It's like you fly over and you're like, wait, because I come from the ground, these don't look like anything, but you go up top and you see these huge straight lines in this presumably empty desert and these drawings of animals. And ever since that, we've been discovering more and more. And there have been more studies recently with the use of drones that have resulted in a huge amount of Nazca lines being discovered. 2020, there was a big uh, drone archaeology program in Peru that led to a huge amount of brand new ones coming in. That's amazing that we're still finding these so before before those peruvian pilots flew around and 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 saw these aerial photos or these this aerial imagery did we just not even know what they looked like like did we did we not know that they were animal shaped or anything like that i i'm not sure Uh, a lot like they said the people there's sort of a discontinuity between the people who made them and the people of today Okay. Uh, the Colombian exchange killed a lot of people. Sure. But also, yeah, there was nobody who was, or at least there's not, there's a big gap in documentation between the like 16th century and the 20th century. So it could have been that they were like, what the hell is all this stuff? <laughs> yeah. They're just like, I don't know. It's just some sort of weird lines. Who knows? And then mm-hmm. you step back, you zoom back a little bit further. Yeah. And the big thing that leads a lot of ancient astronauts people to think that this was something to do with aliens is because of the claim that these images can only be seen from above and are therefore only visible when flying. Mm -hmm. So people have been speculating for decades about what could possibly be the purpose of these massive works. Yeah. To the point where there was one man named James Woodman who actually theorized that the Nazca people might have discovered hot air balloons to to witness them. Oh, that's kind of fun. Like it was almost like a like a fun activity for them, like an art project where they make these and then they go up and they're like, look, it's the it's a whole thing. You thought I was just like dragging my foot in the dirt. I was making an art. Yeah, well, it turns out that this is not really like this has been rejected because there's no evidence oh. that the Nazca people built hot air balloons. Oh, that's but, sad. Uh, Woodman himself did actually make a working hot air balloon using only technology that the Nazca people would have had available to them. So now that is an act. That is a fun art project. Mm hmm. So these Nazca lines existed for a long time. Uh, they then became popularized in the book Chariot of the Gods by Eric Von Daniken. I feel like we're going to hear that name a lot. For real. He posited in his 1968 book that these figures can are only visible uh, from above and that because you can't you know, see them to plan out to make them, it was impossible with the primitive technology, you know, his words mm. of these people. But later on, archaeological research has shown that you could have made these with very simple planning tools, surveying equipment, and, um, you know, like simple things can actually be used on it to make these constructs, most of which the evidence comes from uh, one dig site where there's been a wooden peg found in the soil mm-hmm. that is probably like the only bit of like physical evidence we have of like the kinds of tools they use. But simple surveying tools. Uh, making little sticks in the ground, those kinds of things are probably what they used yeah. to plan out these sites before they drew them. Can I can I just comment on that for a second? Because that seems to be a, a 
a piece of logic that has come up in a lot of the episodes that I've seen is they'll keep saying something like it was impossible that they could have done this, this thing, even by modern standards, it would be so hard to do. Like, it just reminds me, like, I don't know how to make a toaster, right? I couldn't do it. To me, that sounds impossible. You couldn't tell me how to start making a toaster, but that doesn't mean we don't have the technology to do it. Yeah, it would be so hard for me, a singular person, to make a toaster from from start to finish, but like the technology exists and obviously we have toasters, so it's not a hard thing to do. It's just hard for me to wrap my head around. And that's what I think about when when this argument comes up in this show a lot is they're saying like, it's impossible. You know, could you imagine trying to do this? And it's like, well, no, I couldn't because mm-hmm. I don't, does that make sense at all? Like, it just feels like they're tapping into a mindset that is their own mindset where it's like, well, I don't know how to, you know, make these things. So clearly it was impossible for someone in the past to have known how to do it. Yeah. And there's also a very pervasive myth that, the people of the Americas were you know, backwards or far behind the old world when it came to the development of technology. Yeah. Uh, for example, like there's a lot of, you know, comments. People are like, oh, they didn't invent the wheel. They didn't do this and do that. Not really realizing that because they sort of developed on a parallel technological path mm-hmm. to the rest of the world. They didn't develop things the same way or with the same emphasis. Right. And they did have to reinvent everything themselves because, you know, you can't just have a discovery happen in the Middle East or China and then it can go to Europe and then the Europeans can take credit for it. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, there were Europeans who would come to what would be actually kind of close to where you are, you know, like Virginia and stuff. Yeah. And they would land on the beach and they would talk to the local indigenous people and they would observe the kinds of things they were doing. First of all, they would notice that the people were a lot taller because they ate vegetables, which was a thing that Europeans didn't do as much of. But other things like they would say, well, these people aren't really using the land they live on. Mm -hmm. They just sort of hunt and gather. But then when you like, you know, look into what they were actually doing, they actually were practicing agriculture. It was just a different form of agriculture that had developed completely independently. So instead of having the rows of monocrops, they were doing things like uh, focusing really heavily on patches of uh, plants that could mutually reinforce each other so that they were very low maintenance. So while yeah. they might look like they're just, you know, foraging in the forest, this is like a patch of forest that they have, you know, put intentional thought into what things grow there, knowing that what is going to grow there is going to be useful and doing things like growing these plots called like three sister plots, which have uh, three different types of plants growing in ways that mutually reinforce each other so that they can grow with very little maintenance. That's fascinating. I love that. Or when the Spanish arrived in the uh, Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan, Mm -hmm. it was a city that had a population about the size of Paris at the time. It was one of the largest cities in the world at the time of uh, Cortez's arrival Mm -hmm. and had things like aqueducts, uh, artificial island... Like uh, it was built on an island in this like lake and they had like built artificial like to expand the land. Oh, that's so cool. They had canal system like the city was sort of like Venice and it was notably like much cleaner (laughs) than a lot of European cities. And so like it just shows like the the gap between uh, the technological advancements is not as big as people think it was. And it only might have been a technological gap because 
it was just they were just so different from each other. They just developed yeah. in completely different contexts. That that's exactly and that, that's you've hit on what exactly I, I was trying to get at, which is it's not so much that ancient civilizations were so, you know, it was impossible for them to build these structures and, and these patterns and, and whatever, but it's just that it's hard for us to fathom because we weren't a part of that specific culture. And so it's like, yeah, I'm sure they could have done it. There are reasons they could have done it. And it's just, I, I, I just, that's just the line of thought that keeps propping up in these episodes. And it's been, it's been driving me a little, a little batty. Yeah. And furthermore, a lot of our ideas about how these people live is based on written accounts of them after the Columbian exchange, where diseases wiped out 90% of the population. Yeah. And so if you think about it that way, we were walking into an area, like we were walking through an area where entire villages had died out and they were living basically like post-apocalyptic yeah. like, uh, cir- like circumstances. And then that, and then we were just walked in and being like, man, look at all this space they're not using. Not knowing that like an entire village was destroyed and then like plants grew over it. And so they couldn't even tell. To the point where there's an interesting theory that um, the amount of lands that the indigenous people lived on that they had cleared out to like build their villages and towns and cities like their big cities like one in uh Mm -hmm. like the mississippian society and stuff although that one was long gone by the columbian exchange but the amount of people who died and the amount of land that was uh no longer being maintained was so vast that the plants started to reforest the areas and started to like kind of reclaim all this land they lived in. Ah. And this created such a uh, huge uptick in the growth of plants. Yeah. That it sucked a ton of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And it almost, they think it might be linked to around the same time, this huge dip in the temperature of the planet, which is nicknamed the little ice age. Huh? That's fascinating. Well, what a tangent we just we've we've just yeah. engaged in. That's very very fun. If you want to learn a little bit more about this, there is a book called 1491 that I really highly recommend. It's really good. Uh, yeah, that's on my list now. This is very fun. <laughs> All right, back to Nazca lines. This is why yeah. people are here. So, um there's a couple things to say about the idea that these could not possibly be used because or not possibly be non-alien in origin because you can only see them from above. Right which uh, belies a couple things, which is one, you can draw something that you can only see from above without having to see it from above using a ancient art called planning. (laughs) (laughs) True, very true. Uh, But there's also uh, the fact that this region has, it's in the plateaus of like, you know, the big mountain ranges. Mm -hmm. So it has hills so you would be able to get like a vantage point on it. Many of the ones that are like the more elaborate drawings of things are ones that you can kind of see if you're standing on a hill. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like a pretty uh, pretty big hole in this whole alien logic <laughs> thing if you can it's actually all- <laughs> see it from the ground. Yeah, uh, basing it off of a very thoroughly debunked book from the late 1960s was a bit of a stretch. Yeah. But if it wasn't aliens, which, you know, we're, we're starting to think maybe there, maybe this all wasn't right. an extraterrestrial thing. There might be other reasons. I was hopeful there for a second, but you got me with all this, with all your, your arguments. Maybe it isn't aliens. <laughs> but there is still a really big question mark and a question mark that has not yet been solved today with archaeologists. And that is if these weren't aliens, then 
what is the purpose of these things? And a lot of archaeologists have tried to theorize different uses for these. Well, um, lay it on me. What are some uh, What are some of these uses? I think someone in the show talked about maybe people walked these lines as to get in tune with some sort of uh, spiritual spiritualness, like maybe the spirit of the animal that they're walking around. I thought that was kind of an interesting idea. Yeah, there is some precedent to that, that it might have been a path that you walked as sort of a form of spiritual, like some sort of ritual or some sort of religious ritual. Uh, the other idea is that they were drawn to be seen from above because they were trying to get the attention of gods and deities. Yeah, I I had an int- there someone in the show, and I, I promise for future episodes I'll write down who <laughs> the names of the people who say these things because I know I just keep being like someone said this, but I, I wrote this down. It was a very interesting quote. I'm paraphrasing here, but. The, the guy was like, did they make these images just to make something for the gods, like to make art for the gods? It's possible. But who are the gods to these people as if to imply that they're aliens? And my response would be, couldn't you just say that about everything? Couldn't you just say, you know, oh, they were making this to appease a god. But what if the god was an alien? You could always just say the phrase, what if the god was an alien to everything? And then suddenly you have every culture throughout, you know, ancient history is aliens. And of course, um, a lot of things that would make you think, oh, this has to be aliens. You know, if it was, if the Nazca lines were made up of like, people with big heads and almond eyes and, you know, giving the Vulcan salute and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like maybe I'd have a little bit more to go on there, but it's like pictures of animals and birds and, you know, typical yeah. like iconography that would show up in religious rituals. So here's my theory. Then they were building them for aliens. They were carving out these pictures of animals for aliens because the aliens came to earth and they wanted to see like, uh, they were like, oh, I hear you guys got like uh, some cool animals, but oh, look at us aliens. We're way too big. We're big, giant aliens. We're towering aliens. <laughs> we can't get down close enough to see these animals. And the people were like, hey, I got you. We'll show you what these animals look like. We'll carve them out for you. <laughs> You're like, and some of them are like, yeah, it's like, this is a bird. And I'm like, okay. If you insist. <laughs> if you insist. It's my um, rendition of a bird. <laughs> there's a bit of artistic license. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And the other ones that are lines that are not drawings uh, yeah. could be a bunch of things. And there's a bunch of different theories. Some that they were like lines that led you up to a place to worship mm. that they were like sort of like roads to the the worship place uh some studies of like the topography and the geology of the region suggest that you know when they made these several thousand years ago that these lines were connected to places where aquifers would have been and if you think about it, if you live in a place this dry you probably have some pretty deep uh spiritual reverence for things like aquifers yeah yeah it might be a little important yeah and there is some evidence that possibly the lines were part of either a ritual to sort of magically induce irrigation or literal irrigation <laughs> that's interesting and so yeah many of these lines might have had just utilitarian features born out of the need to harness and manage 
fresh water in a desert. <laughs> it does seem like it is a crucial thing for life to continue there is to have some water mm-hmm. and some less uh, well accepted theories also think that it might have been like they might have been lines demarking people's territory and stuff like that. I think they might have been like sort of like uh, in old places you see like yeah. just like the line of rocks that's like this is that guy's field this is my field <laughs> like as a kid i always thought that the states did have lines between them that carved them out like that and i i guess i imagine they don't i'm still unsure as a near <laughs> almost 30 year old man i'm sure they don't but i all that's that's kind of what i'm picturing in my head is like a if we actually took time to draw out lines in the sand of like this is where nebraska ends this line (laughs) i mean at one point a surveyor probably did it and then there's also yeah they had to know where to put the sign when you drove by it on the highway yeah that's a Uh, that's a fun thing you always i have this we do this thing where we just reach forward as far as we can in the car so that you can be the first person to cross into a new state it's a fun time that's a new game for all of you listeners the other the other fun one is um there to kind of odd on that like idea is when Canada and the United States decided after the war of 1812 that they were going to like actually draw their border. They're going to take a line and say, all right, this line that goes from here to here, mm-hmm. that's the above. This is Canada below it is America. <laughs> and we had to actually survey that so we could actually figure out what it was. And so literally like, 19th century, they just sent guys with, I imagine, just bigger, uh, big hats and bigger mustaches uh, out into some of the most like remote, empty like parts like like this is like, uh, you know, like northern North Dakota, Mm -hmm. southern Saskatchewan, like, you know, this kind of area where, you know, even the uh, even the indigenous people who live there live like, you know, very nomadic lifestyles There's like very sparsely um, populated and lots of like woods and they just took them out with like real big ropes and just said like, all right, we'll stand this far apart and we'll mark these two points and then we'll say that's this and that's this. And so <laughs> if you really look very closely at the Canadian American border, it's sort of a zigzag because they couldn't possibly draw a straight line that long with like right. the, like uh, some some guys with serving equipment in the 19th century. So they could have done it. If they had been visited by aliens. Who made these zigzag lines in the ground? (laughs) Scholars Uh, remain divided. Yeah. So back to the Nazca lines. The most recent thoughts come to the fact that the different regions of the places where the Nazca lines are show that they might have had different purposes in different areas. Mm -hmm. Like the lines are not where the animals are. And there are some other ones that are a little bit more geometric in looks and stuff like that. Right. So it could be that... Some were, uh, you know, ceremonial, some were, you know, drawings, some were irrigation, and they just existed for different things in different places. There's one one that has lines that point to locations where the sun would have risen on the equinoxes and the solstices. So it could have been like a pilgrimage point. Where I people see. would go there for the the festivals of the, you know, many cultures have festivals that honor the spring equinox or the, you know, the summer solstice or whatever. And this would be the place they'd go to celebrate that. So it could have been like a kind of pilgrimage site. That's interesting. So, but, but you're saying that it's very possible that all these different lines could in fact be different because they're just different things. And then us in our with our modern lens, we're like, they're all the same thing and they mean something. Yeah. 
And it's difficult to like it's difficult to find some of these answers, especially when they come from civilizations that have uh, since uh, disappeared uh, for one reason or another. Uh, another example that comes up in the special is talking about the Mexican site of Teotihuacan. Yeah. A place that I've actually been. I have stood on top of that pyramid. Oh, awesome. Um, and Teotihuacan is another place that was built by the Teotihuacanos, who were a Nahuatl-speaking organi- uh, civilization that died out. And then was it was rediscovered later by later Nahuatl-speaking people who did not know its origins. And so they said, oh, this must have been built by the gods or whatever. But we've since done archaeology and found lots of skeletons and you know remnants of their day-to-day lives and stuff. Uh, yeah. but, plus, I actually don't know if they let you climb the pyramids anymore. It's sort of like a I think they have sort of a uh, complicated relationship with it because they know mm. when people visit, they want to climb it, but also climbing it causes damage to the pyramids. And so, yeah, you, I get you. You want to preserve it as much as you can. Yeah. Like uh, I've been in the Yucatan a few times and depending upon where you go, different pyramids, depending upon how long they've been discovered for, they uh, will either um, let you go to the top or not. So you need to you need to time it up to get one of those fresh pyramids. Yeah, like I don't think like some of the older sites in the Yucatan, like if you were to go to Chichen Itza, mm-hmm. which is sort of like the big Mayan uh, ruin there that a lot of people would recognize immediately. I don't think you can go up those anymore. Ah. But uh, I remember I climbed to the top of Koba, which is sort of a smaller uh, ruin there. And it, it, the thing is, like, it's 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 fascinating to see. And you can, like, tell that, like, there's so much to discover about these civilizations that we don't know because I'm, I'm getting somewhere with this. Yeah, please. Because when you climb to the top of Koba, not only are you very tired because it's a very tall <laughs> thing that does. There's no there's no elevator. It's just very steep stairs mm, and a rope. It's, um, it's, yeah, you got to work those legs. It's leg day. Oh, yeah. So but when you get to the top, you look out into the jungle essentially Mm -hmm. and you can see just like to the horizon everywhere overgrown forest and you can see this very flat region just bumps of overgrown plants and all of those are maya ruins that have yet to be clawed out of the jungle because the archaeology like serious archaeology of like the region has only been going since maybe like the 1970s wow and so there's just like tons of stuff that is yet and so like look at these nazca lines they existed and for like over a thousand years at a minimum before uh they were rediscovered that's amazing it's, There's a lot of secrets out there a lot that of we're stuff. still trying to find. Yeah. Um, another example, although this, I, we're getting a little bit more on a tangent, but I think it's fine. Um, another example is we don't know where the tomb of Genghis Khan is. Huh. Because there's just so much empty land in Central Asia that we just can't find where it is. And there was even a citizen science project where you just look at different like satellite pictures of just big empty fields. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you see anything that looks like a tomb, you could uh, you could point it out so that people could go check it out. Well, see, this is why we need. Have they heard of Laura Croft? Yeah, She's we need more familiar with tombs. I was about to say we need more tomb raiders. Mm-hmm. And it's like no, no, we don't. We, we need tomb respecters. We to- yeah, we don't. <laughs> Honestly, Laura Croft, you're on my my bad list right now. Stop raiding tombs. I don't care how many fun puzzles there are inside of there. It's not worth it. You need at least like ten different seasons of. Uh, you know, writing for grant proposals and like 
spending like seven to eight months just properly excavating like a single like 12 inch by 12 inch uh, square of land. Mm -hmm. Um, But these there's there's sort of a more modern thing. So these Nazca lines very well preserved and uh, could have been like one of the amazing uh, relics of human civilization and ingenuity to the point where it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site now. Oh, that's awesome. Which is a sort of short list of uh, sites that the UN has determined as like uh, special and important parts of the human global heritage, which gives it some forms of protection. Well, that's good. And I'm sure with that protection, these lines are going to last forever and are not under any sort of threat in any capacity and we're fine and we don't have to worry about them, right? Yeah, about that. Um, The Nazca lines are... Uh, have been preserved for thousands of years, but modern lo- modern world is starting to come for them. And possibly them being discovered was one of the worst things to happen to them. But mm. uh, people are starting to move closer and closer to the Nazca lines, you know, as humanity starts building more and more houses and moving into more and more places that were less and less developed in the past. Because of climate change and because of things like deforestation, the region is starting to now get the occasional mudslide. Mm. Now, None of these uh, have damaged the lines yet, but now there's you know reasonable worries in like kind of other similar places to be worried that uh, so that that mudslides and like and those kinds of things caused by soil erosion will probably be a threat to them in the future. And there's humans. Oh, humans are messing with the site. It's now always too. humans, isn't it? Yeah, in 2012, uh, a place where the Nazca lines were. Uh, were occupied by squatters. And uh, when they were there, they damaged a Nazca cemetery. Oh, that's no good. Don't do that. Uh, In 2013, because the region has been opened up for quarrying, so there has been like mining operations and stuff like that showing up in the region, Mm. uh, a quarrying machine accidentally damaged part of the Nazca lines in 2013. Come on. That's Uh, irresponsible. We didn't find this out until uh, several years later, but in 2012 and 2013, the Dakar Rally went through this region. The Dakar Rally is like a really long um, car race. Oh, come on. Um, Are you kidding me? And it seems that some tire damage happened to the Nazca lines during the Dakar Rally because it's basically a really long rally or really long car race where you have to like navigate through rough terrain and stuff like that. So some cars must have driven through part of it. Unbelievable. Someone was like, oh, I see these lines here. Make a make a monkey. I'm going to make one that's like a donut. Here we go. Well, that's his thing is that they can't be seen from the ground. So it might have been that they didn't even notice like a lot of times, like the damage that happened in 20, the the Dakar rally damage uh, happened in 2012 or 2013 when the Dakar rallies happened. But we can't tell exactly when it happened because it wasn't discovered until like a decade later. Right. Or not a decade later, but um, it happened uh, several years later. Several years later. In 2014, uh, this is going to be a fun one. In 2014, Greenpeace held a demonstration at the site as a sort of pro-environmentalist message. No, don't. Uh, and Come while on. they were holding the event there, no, no, no. they did damage one of the sites. Unbelievable. You're better than that. And um, in 2018, a truck driver accidentally 
cause damage to one of the sites by driving over it. What's with the driving? Stop driving over them. Do, do we yeah, not have cones set up around the Nazca lines? Do we not have anything that's just like, hey, don't drive here? It's very far out. We might not. Um, but like it is a region where it's very easy to do that kind of damage because as I said, they're very yeah. fragile. They just have relied on the fact that it's an extremely stable climate there. Yeah. But yeah, uh, this place used to be a remote and desolate location where few humans ever tread, but now human effects are showing up and these are very vulnerable things yeah. that once destroyed cannot be remade. Yeah, I mean, just being on Ancient Aliens, I'm sure attracted a lot of people to want to go check them out and see them. Yeah, and this is one of the more depressing things is that um, knowledge of sites and popularity of these sites and this the Nazca lines have have a lot of their popularity uh, due to ancient astronaut theorists Yeah, brings tourists and there's actually like a bit of a problem. Well, maybe not now, but there is in the grand scale a bit of a problem that tourists are coming to a lot of historical sites and doing damage. <sighs> Don't do that. Listener. Don't do that. Don't go to a historical site to to damage it. We have so much to learn still. It might not even be like vandalism and stuff like that. It's just that like some of these places just don't have the infrastructure to yeah. have lots of people show up. Yeah. Like Machu Picchu in um in the Andes Mountains is a very special site that has to have a lottery now to go to it because they've decided to put limits on how many people can just go and see it every year to limit the, you know, the the entropy that happens with just people going around and taking pictures of these ancient sites because <sighs> yeah. tourism is becoming more of an industry. And this is going to be the problem with this podcast is we're going to talk about so many cool places that I want to go see, but now I will vow to never go see them so that we can preserve these ancient cultures. And, and yeah. I don't want to cause damage. I know that if I went to one of these sites, I would, I would accidentally spill something. I would like knock something. I'd spill my, <laughs> spill some orange juice on something. And I'd be like, Oh man, that's, that's on me guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> and I just ruined history. And I go to the Coliseum and spoil an orange Julius. Yeah. Be very on point. <laughs> um, the best thing, though, is the Nazca lines you could go and see safely because the best way to see them is by uh, going to Lima and getting an airplane and flying over them. That is true. Yeah, that's a good point. Although there is something to be said about the effects that you know airplane travel has on the entire planet so maybe i will be destroying the entire planet if i do that okay fair but at least you won't be destroying that specific site that's true i have equal i destroyed everything equally (laughs) and so this fits a lot of different lessons we can take away from a lot of things the ancient astronaut theorists uh, bring up first of all just because a thing looks like a modern thing, when a modern person looks at it, is that's going to skew you to think like the fact that they thought it looked like an airport because with a modern person's view, it looks like an airport. Right. But, you know, a person thousands of years ago who has never heard of airports, nor would they ever, would not stop to think, hey, uh, this thing looks kind of like an airport. Maybe we should design it differently. Yeah, I mean, they just look like um, runways. They don't even look like airports, right? Where, yeah. where's your little cinnamon roll stand? You don't have that, <laughs> so it's not it's not a real airport. It's like digging in the soil and finding an ancient desiccated cinnamon roll. <laughs> now, then we'd now that, be onto something. 
Yeah, <laughs> I'd have some questions then. <laughs> um, and on top of that, it is another case of being very dismissive about the varieties of human spirituality, ingenuity, and uh, you know just the amazing things that we're capable of, especially of indigenous Americans. Absolutely. But that is the Nazca lines. Got it in a tight one hour. This was so fascinating. Uh, <laughs> I, th- I feel like a lot of the stuff that will that we've touched on here will, will continue on throughout episodes. Uh, I did just want to comment really quickly. Uh, I watched, like I said, episode one, and then I watched like the episode zero special and the episode, like the, the original special, which I think is called chariots, gods and beyond that had way more dissenting voices than I, than I expected. It had people there who were like, Mm, no, it's not aliens. Whereas the other episodes of Ancient Aliens that I've watched, those voices are gone. There is no voice oh of reason. There is just like, it's definitely aliens. And that's why we're here. That's why this that's why this podcast is here. Cause now we <laughs> will continue to be those more reasonable sound voices. And I by we, I do mean Tristan. I am here just to learn. And to uh, to have fun, exciting moments of learning about history, learning about the past, learning about ancient civilizations who are way cooler than people give them credit for. I mean, that's really the, the sad thing to me is you're taking credit away from these really cool ancient civilizations who are doing super rad things beyond what people think are possible to the point where they're like, it's definitely aliens. And... I think that's a shame. I think give people more credit, you know? Yeah. And uh, next episode, we might do something about Indian Sanskrit flying machines and and battles in the sky. (laughs) I was, yes, I forgot what these are called, but I did watch this episode. I'm so excited. I have so many questions because here's the thing, right? We talk about the Nazca lines here and we talk about how they might look like runways but runways for what what kinds of flying machines we'll find out yep uh in the meantime though you can subscribe to this podcast on any podcatcher you like right probably i imagine so uh yeah itunes hopefully uh spotify google any place we're trying to put it up on all of those uh locations for you if you're listening to this episode you've definitely already found it on one of them so thank you uh in advance for subscribing or following or whatever the the verbiage is on whatever platform you are using if you want to give us a review we would super appreciate that uh we're a brand new podcast and reviews help us out tremendously i won't do this for you tristan I can edit this out, but I've always had the hope of being the most four star podcast. Everyone asks for five stars, but in my head, I'm like, what if we were the most four star? What if no five stars, just four stars? If you want those five stars, we can do that and I can edit all this out. But I always thought that was just (laughs) a funny thing. Let's do it. You want to do it? You want to commit to being the most four star podcast? SEO is for... Uh, chumps. I don't even think it does anything. We're going to just, Pro- <laughs> yeah, you and I are just going to talk about this podcast on all of our other social platforms anyway. And we're going to get to the top of the charts on, on Reddit. Does Reddit have charts? I don't know, but we're going to do all of those things. I don't care if iTunes 
doesn't bump us up because we have only four star reviews or whatever. I don't think iTunes is doing anything anyway. You know what I mean? Tim Cook just listening, just being like, oh, really, fool? You can keep up with the show at It's Probs Not Aliens on Twitter. Yes. And you can find our work on YouTube on uh, NerdSync and Step Back History. Yes, we both have YouTube channels that have nothing to do. Well, mine has nothing to do with uh, this kind of stuff. But yours does. Yours is very historical uh, and fact-driven and very fun and um, very educational. Uh, Step Back History and my uh, YouTube channel called nerd sync is just me talking about nerdy stuff. So it's not anything near this, uh, but hopefully you'll find both channels very entertaining. Yep. All right. Uh, we'll see you at the next one. Yes. I wish we had a live long and prosper. Yeah. I wish we had a sign off. We'll come up with a sign off later, but, um, yeah, just thanks for listening everyone, I guess.